Let's pray. Our Father God, we come to you this morning and we are so very grateful, so grateful that in you we have the hope of life and life eternal. We are so grateful that you've assembled your church together here as the body of Christ at Harbor Shores. And we're grateful that you've given us your word. You're trustworthy. You're reliable. You're authoritative and eternal word that is living and powerful, working in our hearts, working in our lives, and giving us a gospel, a good news that is both saving us and is good to be proclaimed to the lost who desperately need to hear it. And God, I pray this morning that your word would do its work in our hearts and that we'd have a sweet time together in your word, a sweet time of being encouraged, of being exhorted and rebuked, and a sweet time of resting and holding fast to what is true and good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things I love about Harbor Shores Church is people like Chris Fritz. Last week, he's preaching his heart out here. And this week, he was playing beautifully at the piano. I mean, is there anything you can't do, Chris? I think you're coaching soccer, right? No, you're just at a meeting. Okay. Um, but I, 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 in all seriousness, I love that. And you'll see, you'll see our leadership team working in children's ministry as, alongside our congregation at large. I love that about Harbor Shores, is, is to see a team like this come up. The Fatahs are out of town, and man, worship was sweet again this morning, as it is we each week, and so we're grateful. It's a joy to be back um, and to be in the pulpit this morning, um, looking at the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I'd encourage you to take up a Bible. You could get it out of the pew or chair in front of you if you don't have a copy, either a hard copy or a copy on your phone. Turn to Revelation, chapter 2 verses 12 through 17, where we'll be looking at the third letter to the churches of Asia Minor. The third letter written to the church in Pergamum. And this is what the Lord had to say to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and did, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Well, that was a good start, but now I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one, know, that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and to our understanding of his word. This morning, as we begin this third letter, it's helpful for us to just understand a little bit about the city of Pergamum. Because in order to understand what they were going through as a church, it's helpful to understand where they lived. Pergamum is, um, is built around a mountain. And that mountain rose up about 1,300 feet in the, above the surrounding region. It was a proud and beautiful center of medicine, intellectual understanding of worship and trade. It wasn't a port city. It wasn't directly on a trade route, but it was considered by some to be the greatest city in Asia Minor. See, the city of Pergamum was about 100 miles away from Ephesus, about 
Smyrna, who we talked about last week, was about halfway between Ephesus and Pergamum. And so we're following the mail route where this letter would have been, been, all seven letters would have been tracked along as we sort of move on from Ephesus then to Smyrna and Pergamum. And then we'll move on to Thyatira from there. So a little bit of history. This city had an ancient history, largely ruled by this group called the Adelids. And you're like, I don't care. I don't know who the Adelids are. Move on from the history already. That may be you, but there are others of us that kind of dig history. Okay, so just give us a moment, um, a moment to enjoy history. Attalus III bequeathed his entire t- kingdom after about 170 rules under the Attalids. He bequeathed the rule of that kingdom to Rome in about 133 BC. From that point forward, Pergamum became that Roman emperor over this region that Rome called Asia. Some of you are very confused by this whole Asia thing. I'm like, we're like, this, this is not Asia that we know today, right? This is, we think of Asia as being sort of the Pacific Rim countries and at least, you know, in, past India off over that neck of the woods. Well, this was what they called Asia. We know it more as Asia Minor. And so Pergamum was the capital at the time of the writing of this letter. As he was writing, as at the writing of Revelation, Pergamum had actually been the capital city for about 250 years. Not only served as a provincial capital, but it was actually the site for the second largest library in the world. Some of you know where the largest one was, and that would have been in Alexandria, northern Africa, right? So this is kind of a big deal. This is a big, this is a big, important city in this region. So it's a center for intellectual thought, intellectual thought, but also for worship. So on top of this mountain, on top of this mountain was not only this largest library um, behind Alexandria, but it was the first city in the region to have a temple built for a living emperor who claimed to be God. Matter of fact, he claimed to be a savior God. That's pretty bold. So this Augustus had this built in 29 BC, dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Rome. So Pergamum was not only the keeper of this temple to Caesar in that area, but also up there on this mountaintop, there was a, a big temple to the goddess Athena. Okay. And this building a picture, okay, you saw the, the overview of this up, you saw that amphitheater, this, it was the steepest amphitheater in the world at that time. You had to overcome a little vertigo as you walked down that thing, okay, down the side of that mountain, but you looked down this beautiful view down upon the city, alright? So up on top, you've got this library, you've got a citadel, you've got a temple to Athena, and a, a, you had a temple for Caesar, and you also had this big thing, an altar built to Zeus. I think we have a picture of that. This altar built to Zeus, which is currently displayed in Ber- Berlin's Museum Island. One of the islands I didn't get to go to when we went to Berlin with the goods a number of years back, but... Some believe that this altar, it looks, I mean, this looks like a whole temple itself. That's actually an altar. And back, you go up those stairs and back through, and there's actually a place to sacrifice stuff. All right? Whatever stuff that they're going to sacrifice. But that was the altar. Um, and so it was kind of a big deal, sitting up on the top of that mountain. Okay? So when we think of small town USA... You know, this, we live in, we live in Cicero. You may live in Noblesville or Westfield or wherever it is you live. These aren't small towns. Small town is where I grew up, right? Where everybody in the town can see the water tower, right? There's a country song about, well, there's more than one about water towers. There's a reason. It's the most prominent thing in every community in the Midwest and West, right? You can see the water tower for miles. It, literally for miles, okay? Um, I lived a block away, and I could see it when, out my bedroom window. That was the thing that you... Yeah, look at that, a water tower. It says Waverly on it. You know, it's a big deal. Um, but here, you have a 1,300-foot mountain, at the top of which are all these temples, this huge library, and so this whole community, every day, as they went to and fro, there's the mountain, there's... What we're about, 
That's what we're about. This is what our community is. And they were proud of it. This is not like, oh, yeah, we're living under the... No, this is, we're a big deal. We are a big deal. Just look at that, right? I mean, they kind of like think of themselves as Carmel. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Sorry, you Carmelites. I apologize. Um, (laughs) But they kind of thought of themselves as a big deal, and they wanted you to think of of, of, of them as a big deal. Their culture was a big deal. So it was in this city, in the midst of this pagan worship, in the midst of this big deal about Caesar and Athena and Zeus, and everything that came with it, the whole culture that thrived around that, the immorality, the idolatry. It was in that environment where this precious church was growing, where God had planted this church, We don't know exactly when. We assume, based on what we read in Acts, that Paul spent a long time there in Ephesus. And during that time, the whole region heard the gospel. Um, So we assume that it was likely built in. But it was to this church, in this city, in the midst of this culture, which Christ wrote the third letter to the churches of Revelation. In this letter... We see similar elements to what we read in the others, right? We've got, first of all, a self-description of Christ. We've got an encouragement in some of them from Christ. We have one here. We have a concern of Christ, which we didn't have last week. Um, But we have a call from Christ. And then finally, we have some promises from Christ for those who conquer. So first we read uh, this self-revelation. We read Christ's self-revelation as a supreme authority and ruler. In verse 12, it reads, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this would have been quickly understood in a couple of ways. The first way is that the Roman consul who lived there, that was his sign, was the sword. And when Christ steps up to Pergamum and says, "Mm, I am the sharp two-edged sword. Well, for the culture there, they knew that he was saying, uh, I'm the authority. I have the final word. I'm the one in charge. And don't you forget it, church. Right? But they would have heard it in another way as well, very likely. They would have heard, ah, the sword of the Spirit, the two-edged sword. Ah, we're talking about the Word of God. And we're going to see that come very clearly later in this very passage, right? As we read on through the letter, that it wasn't just a symbol of authority, but it was the very Word of God that is that authority, that, pro- that, that proclaims that authority to His church. You see, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Not you, Caesar. Not you, Roman consul. Not you, temple worshipers. Not you, believers who are running around in sexual immorality. Not you, false teachers who are encouraging this kind of garbage. Not one will escape his view. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The power of Rome was no threat to the Lord Jesus Christ or to his authority. Every person and ruler will one day bow the knee, will answer, will answer to him and not to Rome or any earthly court. So Jesus' supreme authority matters. It matters. And why does it matter? Why did it matter to the church in Pergamum? Because they lived under this constant reminder, a constant reminder that said, Rome is over you. Athena is over you. Zeus is over you. And Jesus says, and I'm over them. I'm over them. He knew what this meant for his church. Jesus knew. But he knew something more. And I love, this is probably my favorite verse in this whole passage, is what comes next. It reads, I know where you dwell. 
where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Why do I love this verse? Because Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Now, when you could read this a certain way and you go, oh, oh no, Jesus knows. I know where you live. That's not what he's saying. That is not at all what he's saying. He's like, hey, I know, I know where you live. I know the pressures. I know the dangers. I know the struggle. I know what you're going through every single day. You live at the throne of Satan. You live where Satan's presence is palpable. You live in the middle of that. And you remain faithful. Oh, you held on to my name. You held fast to my name. Even when one of your beloved... When one of likely, one of your leaders, my beloved Antipas, who was a faithful witness, even when they came and killed him right in the middle of you, you held fast. I know it. I know it. Friend, hold fast. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Nahum 1.7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. That's the call. I know where you live. I know where you live. I know what you're facing. You may not be living in the presence of a temple to Athena and to Caesar and an altar to Zeus. But He knows where you live. He knows where you live. He knows your struggles. He knows your pressures. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows. He knows. And I don't think I can spend too much time on that. Because he knows. But what did he know? Well, we've already pointed out, he knew their circumstances. He knew what pressure they were under. So he knew their circumstances. But he knew something more. He knew their faith in Christ. They had held fast to the name of Jesus. They had refused to pledge allegiance to Caesar, much like those, those friends just a few miles away down in Smyrna. They had refused to take the name of Caesar. They held fast to the name of Jesus. But not only did Jesus know that they were holding fast, but he knew that they held fast to the bitter end, especially one of them, and that was Antipas. We don't know the details, we don't know what went on around it, but we, we know that this faithful witness was martyred. And we live in a day and age when time after time, we see church leadership, we see the scandals, we hear the stories. You just, I have a couple of accounts I follow online on Instagram where I just see story after story of people in the midst of scandals. Here's a brother who said, I'm holding fast. I'm holding fast to the end. I'm holding fast to the end. And he did. You see, we can. We can. And the church in Pergamum did. They were holding fast. But there is a threat to that we're going to read about in a few moments. But why does it matter so much that Jesus knows? Why does it matter that he has intimate knowledge of you and of the church in Pergamum? And of every one who has lived in between. You see, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he's not just sitting up on the mountain aware. He knows and he cares. He sympathizes. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, he too lived in the midst of deadly opposition. He suffered and yet he remained faithful and even died. He knows. He knows intimately and he cares intimately for you. So while Antipas was an example of this faithfulness. There were those in the church in Pergamum who were, shall we say, not so much faithful. They were, in fact, 
um, experiencing some rottenness here in this town. And in fact, that's what Christ addresses next. He has some deep concerns about the dangers that are arising within the church in Pergamum. In verses 14 and 15, we read regarding Christ's concerning rebuke of heresies tolerated. Heresies tolerated. And here's what he has to say. This is, and just to pause, um, this is an aside. Um, I appreciate brothers like Josh Simus, who was here last week, one of our missionaries. When I used to meet with Josh and a couple of other brothers early in the morning before he scooted off to the mission field, one of the things that we would often pray is, Lord, keep us from error. Keep us from error. As we read your word and we study your word today, keep us from error. And then we had a brother in our, our leadership prayer time this morning say, you know, we... We see people, the church, you know, going astray. And, and, and I'm praying for you, brothers. I'm praying for you as our church leadership. I'm praying for you that you'll stand firm. You see, it is, it is this heresy, this false teaching that is such a danger. And for us today, this is a problem. And it's not always just from human beings sitting in our circles. Because now we have the internet, Right? We have the internet. We can access everything. Every bizarre, stupid idea that you can possibly find. Anything that you can find that could confuse you or question what you're, you're believing. It's all there. It's all there. And if you want to be, you dig in, you can. But there's books too. You can go online and order any book you want to read about any kind of, you know, strange theology. And yet there is one who has spoken. He has given us his sharpened, sharp, two-edged sword, which is the authoritative, certain word of God. And on that, on that point, he addresses this issue of heresy. But I have a few things against you. Uh-oh. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. See, Satan seeks to defeat the church however he can. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That doesn't mean Satan isn't going to try. That doesn't mean he's not going to do everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy anything he can about the people of God. He'll steal your hope, he'll steal your joy, he'll steal your confidence. He'll take from you, your, if he can, your, your very life. Satan is one of the biggest fans of suicide and those kinds of things. He loves it. If he can't take you spiritually, he'll gladly do whatever he can to decimate you. Look at Job, right? Look at Job. Satan works overtime to take out the church. In Smyrna, it was from the outside. They were facing tribulation tribulation, and the ten days, which Chris so clearly said exactly what the ten days are last week, right? Um, you have to go listen if you, you don't know what I'm talking about. But they were facing that outside struggle, outside tribu- tribulation. But there was a more sinister problem here in Pergamum. The most urgent threat came from teaching within that, that general fellowship. And I, I, I'm not calling it the church here for a reason. Because I don't think those that were teaching these things were technically part of the church. They were member, may have been members in a local church, right there in Pergamum. But I don't think they were believers. And as such, they technically weren't part of the church, right? So they were allowed to stay likely professing the name of Jesus, right? But they were teaching this false doctrine that was dangerous. And it was creating a rottenness there in this church. Pockets of rottenness. When I was a kid growing up in the, this huge metropolis of Waverly, Kansas, town of about 600 people, we, I grew up in a family of, of five kids, and my dad was a teacher, and you know teachers back then really got paid well, and uh, so we had large gardens, um, and uh, we did have a grocery store in town, so yes, we could go get groceries, for those of you who think that I was born in the 1800s, um, and actually I think in the 1800s my town had two grocery stores, but that's another story. Um, this this little, little family, we gardened 
And when I say we gardened, I'm talking like Paul and Nancy Radcliffe kind of garden. Like you need almost like a, a bit of field to garden. We had, it was huge. I mean, to give you an idea, it's sort of from the sound booth, the far side of the sound booth to, to about where that light is on the back wall. That was one of our gardens from here over. It was huge. Okay. We, it was in our neighbor's backyards, both of our neighbors. Okay. And then we had another garden here behind our house. Well, in those gardens, we had all the normal stuff. You had the tomatoes and cucumbers and stuff. But the big things, the things we lived on, were the green beans, the peas, the corn, and, of course, potatoes. Okay? Potatoes. And you would harvest the potatoes late summer. Believe it or not, it was a sweaty, dirty, nasty job, and I loved it. I liked that part of the job. Because it was like a treasure hunt. You know, you dig a potato, try to avoid stabbing them and with the potato fork, and you roll it over, and you find, oh, I got the biggest one, you know. Um, but what do you do with the potatoes? Because you can't just keep potatoes in a bag in the closet. You know what happens to them. They rot. Right. So we took him down in the basement underneath this house that I lived in, which was built in the 1860s, not the clean, nice basement that many of you know and enjoy. And it was a dark, dank basement that would frequently flood. I'm, when I say flood, I mean three feet of flood. Um, and uh, in those that's where the potatoes were put. But they were in these little racks. Okay, they're built about, about a gap about like that in between each of the racks. And I think there were three of them. And the potatoes were all put in a single layer down there. Nice, cool, dark. Sounds great. Until you're told to be, and I was often the one, you need to go down and turn the potatoes. And the reason you do that is so they don't rot on the bottom. Okay, the problem is, is uh, many of them would rot. And... Let me tell you, one of the worst experiences of my life, not the worst, but one of them, was reaching back in that dark place, grabbing onto a potato to turn it, and it's rotten to the core. Okay? That was nasty. That was nasty. I did not enjoy that part of having potatoes. You see, if you didn't do that, if you didn't remove that one potato before long, the next potato and the next potato, they're all rotten and you don't have anything. Do you get the point? The Lord is reaching in and saying, hey, we need to get rid of this. Or we're gonna, this, there's going to be rot throughout this church. You see, there's rot at the core. And friends, we need to loving, love the church of Jesus Christ just like he does. We should love the church enough. And when I say the church, not just the, the whole church, but the individuals within the church love enough to go and say, dear brother, dear sister, you're off on this. Let's walk through this. Let's see what the word of God says. Let's see what the two-edged sword has to say about this matter. Let's dig in together because we will guard the church. We must guard the church. There were two things that were being taught there. First of all, these teachings of Balaam. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school class, probably the most of what you know about the story of Balaam is Balaam was asked to go curse the children of Israel and God stopped him with a donkey, a talking donkey, right? And, uh, and yeah, that's, I mean, the, it was more than that because there was an angel with a sword. Huh, interesting. Um, that, that sort of fits here, too. There's a sword that's going to be called upon to stop this garbage, too. But he was, there's more to that story. Because he did go. He did go, but he wasn't able to curse the people of Israel. Matter of fact, he gave four oracles, and in every one, he ends up blessing the people. Because he, could, he basically what he says is this, I cannot curse whom God has not cursed. Another time he said, the Lord is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. Like, I can't do anything that... that God has already spoken on. So what did he do? Well, we read later. We don't really get it lined out for us in the story until later. We find out later in, in the book of Numbers, verse 31, it said that, Behold these, the people of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Balak and his, his people, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came upon the congregation of Israel. Well, what was it that he encouraged them to do? He encouraged them to intermarry, because he knew if he could get them to intermarry for the daughters of Balak to go into the sons of Israel, that they would sooner or later be infiltrated. 
They would be compromised. And the idolatrous worship of their wives would then become the idolatrous worship of the families. And in that, we see a bit of what was going on here. These people couldn't undo what God had done. These people were in the midst of a church where a people were hanging on to Jesus. So what could they do? They could come in and say, hey, it's okay. It's okay. Marry, marry the, these Athena worshipers. Marry the Caesar worshipers. Marry the Zeus worshipers. Better yet, don't even worry about marriage. Whatever feels good, you go do it. You're, by the way, you're hanging on to Jesus. You're all good. You're okay. Grace has this covered. Right? And in doing so, Peter says in his book, in Second Peter chapter 2, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Likely, these people saw some benefit. I don't know what it was. We don't know what it was. No one knows what it was except them and the Lord Jesus. But if they were following the way of Balaam, likely they were getting their palms greased to overlook stuff. I don't know. But bottom line is they were encouraging people in immorality and idolatry. But there's something more. Because it's not just this, this group of false teachers, but there's another similar group of false teachers. We know they're different because Jesus said, and, and also there are some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, not to be confused with the teachings of Nicolodian, which might, I might have concerns about as well, those of you with children. But the rot of the Nicolaitan teaching, while different, encouraged the same licentious or libertine behavior. In other words, I can do what I want, right? As a matter of fact, Victorinus, who was a, uh, one of the early church fathers, a commentator, and later a, mar- a martyr under the emperor Diocletian, wrote around 270 AD and said this of the Nicolaitans. Sound like, this sounds like a really good group of people. They were false and troublesome men who as ministers under, under the name of Nicholas had made for themselves a heresy to the effect that what had been offered to idols might be eaten and that whatever should be committed, whoever should have committed fornication might receive peace on the eighth day. All that to say, basically they're saying, hey, if you want to go do your thing, that's okay. In eight days, you'll be clear. All right. Just, you know, what are we doing? We're basically saying, let's minimize sin. Sin's no big deal. Go do your thing, right? Do we see that happening in the world around us? Do we see it happening in churches around us? Not only from the pulpits, but from the lives and behavior of those who are leading the churches? Friends, this is the issue. False teaching is not always what comes from the mouth. It also is what comes as you watch someone's life. Because if they're preaching one thing and doing another, then they are false teachers. They're saying you can live this way and, and believe this and it's all okay. That's false teaching. That's, that's wrong. It's wrong. It minimizes, this kind of minimizing of sin um, is, it minimizes the grace of God. It minimizes the sacrifice of Christ. And it, it makes the church appear at least impotent. When we embrace the beliefs of the culture and begin to practice the the worldliness of the lost, it doesn't make us more relatable and more effective as a church. As John MacArthur wrote, worldliness does not make the gospel look attractive. It makes it look unimportant. If the gospel doesn't change lives, why do we need it? The gospel does change lives. It not only saves us, from sin, it saves us from sin. Does it make us perfect and holy in this lifetime? No. But we don't minimize sin, we repent. Right? We, we repent. We flee youthful lust. And to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. Second Timothy 2.22 See, that is the heart of the believer. Paul wrote to the, the, the Ephesians in chapter 5 of Philippians where he said... Man, don't even let a hint, not even a hint of immorality into your life. That's a high call. That's very different from what these, these teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are teaching. 
So you can't be friends with the beliefs and practices of the world and be a friend of God. James 4.4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And let me be clear what we're talking about here. What we're not saying is you can't, you can't love a nice couch. That's not the love we're talking about here. We're talking about the things that the world system promotes, right? The sinful desires of the world. That's what we're talking about here. So if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So if anyone tells you, hey, do what feels good to you. Man, you were designed a certain way. You were born that way. Yeah, I was, and I I repent of it. I repent of my inordinate lust, my out-of-control desires, my ungodly desires, my sinful desires. I repent of that. And I pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. That's the heart cry of the one who loves the Father because they want what the Father wants. They love what the Father loves because they love the Father's Son, the Lord Jesus. It says, verse 17, And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what was the cure for what ailed the church in Pergamum? The answer is found in verse 16. In verse 16, we read Christ's urgent call to repent and wage war. Now, this is not a popular topic, right? Um, what wage war? Oh, come on, man, just be peace, right? Um, well, we're going to talk about a very specific kind of war. If you will, a, a bit of unconventional warfare, right? Unconventional warfare in our present age. Christ has an urgent call to repent and wage war. In verse 16, it says, therefore... You've been letting this happen. You're letting it go. You haven't dealt with it. There are some among you teaching the ways of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Wait a minute. Hey, hey, we aren't doing anything. We're not teaching it. Because he's talking to the one who's letting it happen. He's not saying, this is not directed. If you read it, he is very clearly directing this to the ones who are allowing it to happen, not to the ones who are doing it. And I think that's because he's writing this to the church. And I don't think they were members, they were, I don't think they were part of the true church. I don't think they were converted men or women. And so he's calling to the church to say, deal with it. Repent. If not, what, how do you repent of not doing something? You do something. And he gives them a hint as to what to do based on what he's going to do if they don't do it. He says, I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. Oh. Remember that? What did he call himself? The two-edged sword? What is now he talking about? The sword of my mouth? What is it that is going to come out of his mouth? It's going to be authority. It's going to be judgment. He's going to speak clearly the truth to the matter and say, I'm dealing with it. Here's my judgment. Okay. In other words, here's what I want you to do, church. I want you to speak my word to them, and I want you to make a judgment. Oh, but we're not supposed to judge. Friends, that verse is one of the worst. I know that we, we talk about the, door, the one we're going to come up in a couple of weeks. I stand at the door and knock. Okay, we're going to talk about, eh, probably isn't used in context most of the time. Okay, but this is an even worse one. Because what does the whole world say the minute you say, well, that's wrong. The word, the word of God says that's wrong. Oh, don't judge lest you also be judged. Okay. We've all heard, well, if you haven't heard it, you have now. Um, but I've heard it so many times. And the fact of the matter is, we are to be fruit inspectors. We are to be people who see the Word of God and compare what we see in the Word of God to what we hear and what we see. And if it doesn't match up to this, we, we make a judgment. And that judgment is, I agree with the Bible. That's wrong. We're not making deciding whether it's right or wrong. We are simply agreeing with the word that comes out of his mouth. The two-edged sword which divides soul and spirit, which gets to the heart of the matter and lays it open. Right? 
I was in pre-med for a couple years in college. I know, shocking. You would not want me as your doctor. Um, but one of the things you did was you dissected things. And one of the hardest parts of dissecting was getting down to all the little details of the nervous system, right? Your goal was to, to dissect out that whole nervous system. It's really pretty amazing. It's unbelievably cool, right? But that's what the Word of God does. It gets down to the, to the very insides of this matter. And so we rely upon the authority and the judgment of the Word of God. See? That's the cure. To repent of not using the Word of God to confront these false teachers and to use the, God, the, the Word of God Otherwise, he's gonna. He's gonna come deal with them. And the Word of God is capable. It's powerful. It's effective. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. It's the word, the, the sword that comes out of his mouth, right? And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, saying, Hey, that's wrong. Correction, here's what's right, and training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And you use that through every single person in this congregation, and you may have the church, right? You have the church. And so you want the word of God spoken, communicated to each and every person clearly in order that Ah, that's who Jesus is. Remember, this whole thing has been about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not primarily about end times. It's primarily, it talks about end times, absolutely. But it's primarily that we might know Christ. We might know how to live in this present age. That we might be able to, to stand firm, to address the issues of our time. And there is a right way to wage war. But have no doubt, it is war. And if you've, if, if, I've never been in war, but those who have know they've been in war. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's a struggle. It's dangerous. We're not to do it through just opinions or character assassination. But make no doubt, it is a war worth waging for the name of Jesus Christ and for the sake of His church. And may we be a congregation, whether it's any of us that stand in this pulpit, or anyone who teaches anywhere, whether it's from our children's ministry, clear on through. May we be easily entreated, the Bible tells us to be, as someone comes and says, hey, I'm concerned. I, I read this, and, and what you shared the other day, man, if, we, if done in the right spirit, it is, it, it, man, what a joy. And I encourage us together to be students of the word, that we might be true to the authoritative word of God. But when we have false teachers, we go after it and we must address it. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If we don't fight this war, the war will still rage. But it will be a one-sided war. And make no mistake, the biggest losers in that battle are young believers and children. People that aren't grounded in the Word of God, and they will pay the price. So having issued this call to repentance, an urgent call to repentance, this letter to the church in Pergamum turns to verse 17, and it moves to a feature that we find in each of the seven letters. It's a word of promise. A promise to the one who conquers. Read this with me. It says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. That's confusing. I will give him a white stone. Hmm. What does that mean? With a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. An old English pastor wrote this about this idea of he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, these words extend the message beyond the church to which they are spoken and address themselves to everyone to whom the word comes and to whom an ear is given to hear and receive it. In this way, each message sent to the seven churches becomes a message sent personally to us. You have an ear to hear? 
Listen. Listen to what the Spirit says. It's to you. It's to you. If we have a spiritually wakened ear, if we are willing to listen to the voice of the Lord, he writes, he speaks to us in every message as personally and as distinctly as he spoke to each individual church. So, let's listen. Not only to the, the, the beautiful expression of his care and his knowledge, but to the rebuke, right? To the warning, the call to repent, to call to wage war. But now, to some very sweet passages that he follows the rebuke with, where he, we read of Christ's eternal promises to the one who conquers. It says in there, it says, to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. He says, this isn't a church-wide, hey, here's what I'm giving y'all. You, you get a stone, and you get a stone, and you get a stone. Okay, this isn't Oprah Winfrey. Okay, this is to the one who conquers. And that means it's a personal thing. Now, most of this has been addressed corporately, right? But now it's to the one. This is, again, a very personal promise that each one who conquers can hear. It says, this is what I have for you, but who is this? Because you'll not slide in. You won't ride anybody's coattails. You'll not just get in, kind of. This is to the one who conquers. So who is the one who conquers? First John 5, 4 and 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Have you been born again? Have you been born of God? Then you have overcome the world. You are a conqueror. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So how are you born again? You're born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, we have the gospel here, right? Right. So who needs to be born again? Those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. Who is dead in their trespasses and sin? Every single person who has ever been born apart from Jesus Christ. So who needs this? We all need this. We all need to be born again. And we're born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? So even more specific, we need to believe not just in in Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That He is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it very succinctly. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you don't have to wait to one day be a conqueror. You can have that victory today. And if you have that victory today, here's what I can assure you. That he who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. Such as the Father has given unto him, he will forever hold on to. If you come to Christ in repentance and faith today, you will experience the victory that is promised here. This is the promise to, this is to whom he is making this promise. It doesn't matter how you feel. This is not a feelings thing. I don't feel most days like I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me, right? I feel like more of a dope and more of a loser in most days when I wake up and live throughout a day. But this is about who the object of our faith. It is not about having enough faith. I've heard that one so many times. I'm not sure if I had enough faith when I first prayed. It is not about how much faith you have. It is about in whom do you have faith. That's the point of this. Because he, if you have your faith in Christ, guess what? He is the two-edged sword. He rules over all. You can count on him. He will conquer all. And so if you're counting on him, the victory's won. It's a done deal. He may be called, he's also justified, and if you're justified, glorified, it is done deal. Okay? So what is it that he's promised? He's promising this to this group of people who is holding fast to his name. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to hold fast? Well, I think he's going to make a threefold promise that will, I think, demonstrate that it is worth it. First of all, he promises some of the hidden manna. Right now, some of us are thinking, I could use a little of that manna about right now. We're, we're close to done. 
All right. Then you can go eat some not so hidden manna. All right. At the local Mexican restaurant or wherever it is you're headed. But first, he promises hidden manna. I see this as the eternal life in Christ. And let me just pause right here. As with all the symbolism that we deal with in Revelation, I encourage you, go study it out. Because there are as many different ideas as there are people in this room about what the hidden manna is. I will always tend to try to go towards the most obvious Right. And if possible, I will appeal to the pages of Scripture to find what is here. Okay. Other times we're sort of left trying to understand it in the context that that the people would understand it. Well, I think this one's pretty simple. I think it is incredibly simple. I think we can refer to John 6.32 and see her answer. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven, what was that bread of heaven called? Manna, right? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I will, to the one who conquers. Sir, Jesus, that's not what it reads here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, Jesus is the hidden manna. I, I, that of all three of these, that's the one I'm the most confident in, because he basically said so, right? And you, hidden manna, what do you mean by hidden? The hidden part, I'm not so sure, except that... that that it's to the one who conquers. To the into, it goes back to this intimate thing. We're going to see that unfold more here. He is the bread of life. And friends, Jesus says, hold on to me and I'll give you what is best. What, is, what are we holding on for? You ever thought about that? What are we really holding on for? Oh, so I can live forever. Folks, this body does not want to live forever. Okay? I can assure you of that. What am I living for? What am I holding on to? I'm holding on to Jesus for what? For Jesus. I want Him. I want Him in His fullness right now. I experience Him, experience him in, this, in this body of sin. This body that struggles. And I see through a glass darkly. But one day I'll behold Him face to face and I'll see Him in all His glory and I'll know it was worth it. Are you struggling today to know if it's worth it? Is it worth losing a friend or two over? Is it worth giving up your, your lust and your desires over? Let me tell you, if you don't love Jesus, then, then no. But Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He's worth holding on to. But that's not all. He gave him, he promises hidden manna. And what is the bread of life? Friends, Christ, He is our life. He is eternal life. But we also are promised a white stone. Some of you collect stones. I have stones in my office I collect from different places. He's not saying, oh, I've got a stone from up on top of the mountain. I'm taking one of their white stones out of their, you know, their altar that we saw and giving that to you. No. I think, and I agree with, with our brother, um, Joseph Philpot, as he believes and, and others that this goes back to a practice in that time. An ancient practice whereby criminals were either condemned or acquitted according to each judge as each of the judges dropped a black or white stone into a jar. Okay? In one of the celebrated Greek tragedies, Orestes, who had slain his mother as a judicious act, in other words, he was right in doing so, he believed, because she, along with her adulterous lover, had murdered his father. In his distress, Apollo advised Orestes to go to Athens and plead his case before the court of Areopagus. Well, you may be familiar with the Areopagus. That's where our brother Paul actually stood and, and dealt with the, this idol to the unknown God. Okay? So, the causes tried. The judges dropped their stones, some black and some white, into this urn. But the goddess Pallas, who is the, uh, the arbitress of the trial, drops in a white stone. The pebbles being counted are found equal, and Pallas declares that the criminal is acquitted. Acquitted. Jesus says, I will give him the white stone. In that Greek understanding, 
in that day, they would have all been immediately familiar with how the court proceedings went. And Jesus has the final and frankly only vote and says, I dropped my white stone. You are acquitted. You have eternal life. You are acquitted, eternally acquitted before the throne of God. You are free. And, and so we read in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friend, should we hold on to Jesus? Ah, he's, he, he is more than worth, worth it all. We have eternal life. We are acquitted a thousand times yes. But there is something more. There was a new name written upon that stone. A new secret name. And I think this expresses, expresses this the eternal delight in and of Jesus Christ. To the one who holds fast to the name of Christ, he promises a new, a new name. An eternal place of belonging. These people felt like they were born in the wrong time and the wrong place. He knew where they lived. They didn't belong there in their minds. We are not followers of Athena, of Zeus, and all this stuff. Followers of Christ. This stone, this name written upon this stone, is very intimate and very personal. Jesus says, you are mine. I know you like no one else knows you. Each and every person who is in Christ is known and beloved by Christ, and we read here, is given a new name. As the old song says, a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Right? That's that name. And who? why is this idea that nobody else knows it? Because who knows the blessings and benefits and joys of Christ like his beloved? It's much as we would think of in a marriage where maybe you have a pet name for your, your beloved. If you do, I don't want to hear it. It's, it's secret. I think it's biblical. Keep it secret. I don't, don't need to hear it. Okay? But, but it expresses your intimacy and your love for them, your appreciation of them. Okay? And here we find that same thing. You're mine. You belong. You're mine. I delight in you. You've delighted in me and I delight in you. Dear friend, the one who has found victory in Christ has their name recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Their future is certain and eternal life and blessing are theirs in Christ. But I want to, I want to take this to a place that this, this guy who is naturally an encourager doesn't always like to go, but I feel we must. Because there, are war, there is warning after warning of what happens to the one whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. These are promises for the beloved. These are promises to the one who conquers. That means there are those who do not, by faith, trust in Christ, who have not experienced the victory of Christ. And Romans 20.15 says this, And if anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, the one whose name is not recorded does not belong. Friend, if you want to belong in this life, you want to belong and be friends with the world here, you do not have a place in heaven. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with the Father. Friend, the call is not to beat you up, it's to say, come unto Him. All you who labor under your own sinful desires, and He will give you rest. He will give you victory. Friend, repent. And by faith come to Jesus. Revelation 21:27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who have received the white stone. It doesn't say that, but that is, all of us have sinned. I mean, so we've done detestable things, so we can't go? No. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And whose name is written in the Lamb book of li- Lamb's book of life? Those who have by faith come to Christ have had their sins forgiven and by faith have been made alive through the mercy of God and they are conquerors in Christ. Believe God's word today. Repent and come to him in faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be eternally saved. You will eternally 
belong with the Father and your Savior in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is so very precious to us. It is precious, but it is also a fearful thing as we face it every time we open its pages. Because it reminds us that we have repenting to do in our own lives. And God, I pray that you would guard your church here at Harbor Shores. That you would help us to see the truth and to address error. To make war against what is untrue and false. But Lord, help us to hang tightly to Jesus. And we thank you that you know us. That you know what we are going through, where we live, and what our struggles are. And you care. And thank you for your precious promises. Your eternal promises of of, of, of forgiveness, of eternal life, and of ultimately belonging with the Beloved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.